Greetings, everyone. In the name of Jesus, we're glad that you're with us today for worship. It's, it's so exciting to be able to come out and, and worship in a public setting. As Paul traveled and established churches, he established the church or I should say the Holy Spirit did, but Paul was instrumental in establishing the church at Thessalonica, and that is, is thought to be somewhere around A.D. 50, um, 49 through 54, somewhere in there. Um, historians aren't real sure when Paul then wrote back to the Thessalonians, but at some point he wrote this letter. You can turn your Bibles to the book of Thessalonians, the second book, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I just want one verse for opening. At some point he did write a letter, and it's thought to be around the same time that he corresponded back with the Philippians. But there's one verse or two here that just really captured my attention. It's so meaningful, I think, even to us today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Now the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. There's a lot packed in that one verse, isn't there, this morning? And we, could, we too can draw a lot of consolation from this verse, regardless of what you may be going through, what your setting is this morning, your struggles. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and I like that verbiage, and I'm reading from King James, because that really personalizes it, the message that's in this verse. Jesus Christ himself has given this to you. It's just like Jesus is appearing here today. Jesus himself and God the Father. So we could conclude and God himself. Jesus himself as the Messiah, as our Savior and God himself as Father has loved us. And really we could say period. We could say that's enough to draw us together this morning. Jesus himself has lavished his love on us. God the Father has encircled us with his love himself. God himself is pouring out his love upon you this morning, upon us. And not just us in this room, those that's watching, and everyone around the world. God loves you. God himself does. And he has given us everlasting consolation. God himself. Jesus himself has given us consolation. And this is the phrase I wanted, good hope. I just love that phrase. God has given us good hope. In a time frame, in a world that we live in, where it appears like there is no hope, God has given us not only hope, but God has given us good hope. Himself. He, he's, done the, he's appeared to us through Jesus Christ to lavish his love upon us and to give us consolation and good hope through grace. Because we don't deserve it, God has given us himself through 
his grace. Verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Whatever we say, whatever we do, is established on this. God's love, his consolation, his strength that he gives you, and his good hope. We want to welcome everyone here this morning. Appreciate you visitors that's joining us. You uh, young people, I, I love to see this section or wherever you're setting full. Appreciate young and old, and everyone's welcome as we assemble together under the canopy of God's love and good hope. We'll go to prayer. We'll take prayer requests. Um, and then we'll have opening prayer. In Gail's absence this morning, uh, Brother Gary Stahl has been invited to share the message this morning. Uh, when he concludes, um, we'll have a song. And then, as was announced, we will welcome Andrew and Laura Stoner into membership here at Cornerstone. And we're glad for that. And then we'll have a closing prayer then following uh, that. So prayer requests this morning. And I know there's endless. Phil. I talked to uh, Bud and Janice last night. Okay, good. Uh, Marcia's voice is stronger. And it felt like she was doing a little bit better. She caught out of the woods, but she was very much encouraged by me. Jordan and Marcia Jamison in Quinter, Kansas. Brother David. Yeah, he too, I think, had a little better day yesterday, but still uh, very much struggling. Ryan Miller, I think I'll call on you for prayer. Um, Marcia? Yeah, that's what, so Alan and B. Miller. Okay, let's come before him in prayer. Ryan.
Good morning, everybody, and we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus, and as has been done, we welcome everybody here this morning. Glad we can meet somewhere to worship. What a blessing. I think the most profound words that we're going to hear today have been spoken this morning. Maybe uh, most of us weren't here yet. But it was, I didn't get it verbatim, but it, it was um, this morning, as Burke spoke, he talked about waiting, and he uh, concluded with a statement, something like this, he said, I'm confident things are happening while I'm waiting, or something similar to that. That is a profound statement. That's a profound statement, and there's lots of times in our life that we need to remember that. It brings confidence and hope and patience and all kinds of things that, that we need in those moments. While we're waiting, God is working. Well, I don't know if anybody, I suppose a few at least noticed that this past Tuesday, I think, was what uh, has been termed Giving Tuesday. And um, I noticed it because I got some emails, and I'm sure some of us did, asking us to participate in Giving Tuesday. And I thought, well, what's that? And so I had to look it up and everything, and, and it's a good thing. It only started just a few years ago, 2012, I think, by the 92nd Street Y in New York City. And it's an effort for uh, an organized effort that's just gone over the world to get people to give more generously. And often the way it works is some organization will establish a means whereby you can give and they'll match your funds, which of course draws out more and then doubles it and so forth. And so anyway, this week, Tuesday, was officially a day in the year where a lot of people would give. And we're in that season, and I suppose that's when they established Giving Tuesday. It's always the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. 
And we're in the season that's known for giving, at least in Christian circles. And it's officially the Christian season, a time of extravagant and generous giving. Many folks even go in debt to give and pay for it maybe a long time afterwards. In fact, approximately 30% of all charitable giving is done in December. That varies year by year, of course, that's approximate. And, and 10% even is given, is donated to charitable causes the last 48 hours of December. Now that may be for tax reasons and uh, maybe a little bit selfish there possibly, but nonetheless it happens. Okay, it's a big deal. We're in the giving season. I found it interesting also that the number one reason people give to charity is because they're, they're asked to do so. Well, I, that's a little bit of a negative. Well, to give, that's a good thing. But to, be, to need to be prompted to give, if that's indeed the case, isn't maybe ideal. We want to give because we have chosen to give. And that's kind of the theme of my message here this morning. We want to give because we're chosen to give. I, I did write this for a title, Godly Generosity in Everyday Life, not just on Giving Tuesday or not just in December, but, but every day. Have a spirit of godly generosity. And I want to follow a theme through the scriptures. There's many. I chose one of where that, that happened and so forth. Um, currently... Of course, it depends on who you listen to and follow and all that and who you can believe, but the United States is the, is the most generous nation in the world. I'm not sure how they actually compile that, and it doesn't really matter. Um, I like to hear that, but you know what? I don't mind if we slip into fifth place or whatever either if it means other folks are becoming more generous rather than the United States becoming less generous, however that may be. Here we are. So helping the poor and the less well-to-do is, of course, deeply rooted in Scripture. I'll read a couple. Uh, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of the field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean the vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so we get the picture here that um, do your normal thing, but don't go back and do it again. Don't get the last. Um, leave that for the poor and the stranger. Um, as an aside, I might mention, I remember seeing an older gentleman years ago that always gleaned his cornfield by dragging a, a sack and a wheelbarrow, and he gleaned his cornfield after the harvest. And uh, his name was William Heisey. And he was just a, a frugal man. And there wasn't anybody else going to do it. And so he did, and he got it all. Deuteronomy 15:11. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor and to thy needy in the land. And so God's establishing that we need to accept the fact that there will always be poor. Uh, Jesus said one time, the poor you have with you always correlates with what this is being stated here. And that we need to have provision for helping them in some way or other. And that's a whole subject in itself of, of the, the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament welfare plan. A little bit different than what we're familiar with in our nation today. But then the story of Ruth and Naomi uh, plays into that, and that's how they were sustained. They were impoverished, and they had no means, and they had no man in the household to look after them. And so because these things had been set up, then they could go glean in the field and, and make their own sustenance. And so um, Malachi then, Malachi 3.8, suggests that to not give God's tithes and offerings is to rob from him. And it introduces the word tithes here, which is a tenth, and applied to our finances, giving a tenth of our finances 
It seems to be that was expected in God's economy in the Old Testament. It's debatable whether that tenth is indeed uh, that we're held to that here today. Some would say certainly, others would say maybe, others would say no. Uh, at any rate, we're to give. And if we don't give, uh, we're robbing God, really? Why is that? Well, because it's his. And he's made us stewards of his stuff. And if we choose to keep it clutched in our own hands, we're not letting it be used by him. It's his. We're keeping it. So it's, in essence, just like robbing God. I might suggest this. Um, I, too, appreciate the young people. And I, I remember as I was uh, younger and your age and older that, you know, trying to figure out what makes life work and what's important in life and what isn't and, and hanging on to what's important and it, it's, it really can be quite confusing. This subject of, of, of godly generosity, I mean biblical godly generosity is foundational. Okay, figure it out. You need to understand it for your own self, for your own, uh, I was going to say satisfaction, but for your own comfort that you're doing as you know best how to do regarding God. We're going to get into the fact that I can't afford it and all that. And I want to cover that here today in, in some way or other. You'll find that's all entirely beside the point. But this is a subject that's really important. And, and I will say, my wife and I have, have commented between us already, uh, talking that we've learned a lot from our own children that we wish we would have learned a lot earlier. So, um, and one other thing I wanted to, to mention here as we're, as we're getting started is that one thing that has blessed my heart as, as we've come here to services and, and routinely we all gather here, there's a brief message, and then we divide up into Sunday school uh, classes. And different times I've seen the, the children leaving this room at that time uh, clutching a bill. And I know the expectation is they'll go to their Sunday school room and, and then they will deposit that contribution, however it is done there, and, and it's, it's, it's their contribution to the cause, whatever the cause may be being collected for that day. And you know, that's, um, that's a blessing to me. They're learning to give, they're learning to be charitable. And interestingly, We'll start then the message in 1 Corinthians 16, the first um, verse that plays right into this, or that plays, this plays into that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, we're going to end up in 2 Corinthians 8. That's really the focus, but I want to build up to that. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So here's the setting. Um, it's the first day of the week, and he's telling the Corinthians that they're supposed to uh, uh, collect, what's the word I want? They're, they're supposed to, uh, well, um, let every one of you lay by him store as God hath prospered. In other words, according to what God has done for you, uh, maybe it's a percentage or whatever, whatever your plan is, why the first day of the week, lay it together. And, and what Paul's really saying deeper here is that that there be no gatherings when I come. We'll find here that, that Paul, in talking to the Corinthians, he's told them that he's going to be there. And they've committed to giving him a collection to take back to Jerusalem. He'll, he'll go there. He'll arrive there. He'll take it from them. And he'll convey it to the poor saints at Jerusalem. Now, it's a historical fact that, that Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem by now was very impoverished, exceedingly so. And so Paul, in the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians, is on his third missionary journey. 
And, and right now he's at Ephesus on that third missionary journey, writing to Corinth, planning to go back to Jerusalem. And he says, collect some every Sunday, first day of the week, collect a portion, whatever you choose, it's a voluntary thing, and hang on to it so that when I come, we don't have to have a big deal right then, but you got it, give it to me, we'll take it to Jerusalem. That's kind of the setting, okay? And it's biblical to do it on the first day of the week, on Sunday, when you get together. That's what it says. Third verse and says, says, and when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. And then he says this further. He's at Ephesus. Okay, if I had planned ahead a little further, we'd have a map up here of this missionary journey. But Paul traveled about 3,300 miles on his third missionary journey. He, he left um, Antioch just north of, of Jerusalem, and he sailed, traveled, whatever, up into Turkey. Uh, we call that, or it was called in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. There's where the seven churches of Asia were. There's where uh, some of the Gospels are addressed to, like Galatia and Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, and so forth. So here at Ephesus, he was on the western end of present-day Turkey, and he was going farther. Uh, he was going on farther. He's maybe a third of the way through the journey, and there he is. He says, the fifth verse, now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do plan to pass through Macedonia. So he's going to leave Ephesus. He's going to um, go into the Aegean Sea, which is a body of water that, that goes off the north uh, part of the Mediterranean. And the top of the Aegean Sea, uh, as, as you're going up the Aegean Sea, uh, on the right will be Ephesus, and north will be Europe. On the right is Asia, north, and on the left will be uh, Europe. And you remember on his second missionary journey, he did a similar thing, and when he was still in Asia, he got the Macedonian call, we call it, and rather than remaining in Asia, he went to Europe for the first time, traveled the same similar route. So as he traveled through the Aegean Sea going north, left Ephesus, traveled straight north, approximately straight north, he come to the, the town of, uh, let me say this, he came to Europe, uh, a portion of that of which was Macedonia, and in Macedonia was a, at least three towns that he stopped at, and one was Thessalonica, one was Philippi, and the third one uh, have to, was Berea. Okay, so that's where he's headed. And then after he passes through Macedonia, which is northern Greece, part of Europe, then he'll turn south through Greece, traveling by land clear to southern Greece, which will be Ephesus, which will be uh, Corinth, and Athens. Okay, so he's eventually headed to Corinth. And now he's writing to Corinth, although he's still at Ephesus. Let's go on. Let's go to Acts 19. And I want to uh, briefly put together this journey. Acts 19, verse 21. Um, this is now Luke writing, possibly Paul's traveling companion, Luke writing uh, from his perspective about this journey they're taking. Acts 19, 21. After, we're still at Ephesus, okay? We're still at Ephesus. In fact, he's been at Ephesus almost three years. This missionary journey took uh, four or five years, 3,300 miles, uh, a couple continents, and he, of that time, he stayed at Ephesus about three years. Verses 21 and 22 of Acts 19 are kind of a parenthesis in the story. It's a little confusing. So they are at Ephesus, but Paul says, after these things were ended, he just 
talking about some events, Paul purposed in the spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. What he's saying is that I think here's what I'm going to do. He's saying that I'm at Ephesus, and when I wrap this thing up, I'm going to go back to Macedonia, which is Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. I'm going to go there, and then I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. And this is the first time he's mentioned that after this missionary journey, he's going to Jerusalem. And it, the thought comes to my mind, when did he decide to go to Jerusalem and why did he decide to go to Jerusalem? And if he's planning to go to Jerusalem, why is he going up into Macedonia? The entire opposite wrong direction. If he wants to hustle back to Jerusalem, why is he going north? Jerusalem is east and, and so forth. Well, maybe the spirit inspired him. It doesn't say so. It says Paul purposed in the spirit, that would be his spirit, he had this thought, maybe it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But anyway, his goal now seems to be to take an offering to the saints at Jerusalem, but he don't have the offering yet. He's got to go find it, he's got to get it. And so as he leaves Ephesus in just a few months, I wonder, did he take an offering from Ephesus? Um, and he's going to, to uh, Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea first. Did he expect them to give him an offering to take to Jerusalem? It doesn't say that he did. It, it's suggestive that that's what he expected, but we'll find that he was surprised when he got there with their generosity. And so it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I just find this fascinating that what was the logic and the line of reasoning and, and so forth. 22nd verse, verse of Acts 19, he says, So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. End of the parenthesis in the story here at Ephesus. So he sent a couple on ahead, and it, it would seem like that he did that to tell them, Hey, I'm on the way, I'm coming, and to be prepared, I'm going to Jerusalem. If you've got something that you could put in my hands to send with you to Jerusalem, with me to Jerusalem, why well, get prepared? So we don't know really why. <clears throat> um, did he go there uh, to make them feel obligated to support Jerusalem? Um, had he set out on this missionary journey planning to come back to Jerusalem? When did he learn about the needs at Jerusalem anyway? Well, probably. He knew him before he left because it seemed to be an ongoing situation. Here's another thing. This third missionary journey lasted, as I said, maybe nearly four years, possibly. Um, A.D. Uh, 53 to 57 is what they say. Um, and if the people are hurting in Jerusalem, uh, it looks like the quicker the sooner, you know. Let's bring it to them. But... Um, it's going to take a while. In fact, then back to what was spoken this morning, I'm confident that things are happening while I'm waiting. And we can just uh, rest in that, just be blessed in that. Uh, it seems like things move so slow sometimes. Um, if you've been on the, the, uh, the needy end of the situation where uh, things are overwhelming, debts are piling up or whatever, uh, health, illness, loss of job, whatever, it just seems like, why can't I get relief? And I suppose the saints at Jerusalem surely would have felt the same way. But things are happening. So we don't know why um, he decided to, to take the roundabout way of getting to Jerusalem, but he did. Um, and so let's go to Acts 20 then, next chapter. And <clears throat> this is still at Ephesus, and there had been a, um, quite an uproar, it says. After the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. So 
He's starting this journey from Ephesus, which would have been a few hundred miles. I don't really know for sure how far. And he, he went into Macedonia, which again is southern Europe, northern Greece, right at the top end of the Aegean Sea. And second verse of Acts 20 said, when he had gone over those parts, speaking of the cities of Macedonia, and had given them much, much exhortation, he came into Greece. Um, maybe it wasn't Greece at that time, it is today, it was Macedonia. Uh, Greece is where Corinth was, southern Greece in fact, and he, he, so he traveled down the, that peninsula of, of Greece, clear down to, to Achaia, which was the area and Corinth was the city. And maybe we'll leave that right there. And then I want to go to 2 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> and we need to move through this pretty quickly. 2 Corinthians 8. It says, and I want to read this. Um, a different version of the scriptures, the first five verses, because it conveys the meaning here, I think, so clearly. I like the King James, um, the, as Bart, uh, men, Bart mentioned this morning about a particular verse, you just don't find some of the words in other versions, the poetry, uh, the depth of meaning, and so forth, but yet, at the same time, the King James can be so awkward at times, so difficult to understand what's going on. Let me read the first verse here in the King James. Second uh, Corinthians 8, 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Well, what do you get out of that? You know, that's a little difficult. Take some study. That's a good thing. If you've got a study to learn the meaning, you hang on to it better. And let's just read through the first five verses. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. Okay, now we are in Macedonia. We're there. Paul's there. Okay, and he's writing to the Corinthians, which is his next stop. So he was at Ephesus and was, was writing about Macedonia. Now he's in Macedonia writing about Ephesus. Except I said that wrong. He, he was in, I get this confused, he was in Ephesus, and he's in, now in Macedonia writing about Corinth, about Corinth. Okay, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. Okay, so we're in Macedonia, and the point we need to make here is that they were very poor. These people had nothing, it says, in fact, um, their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. It's not just that they were impoverished, but they were deeply impoverished. But yet, these people were liberal in their donation that was to go to Jerusalem. And this is the lesson we need to get out of this. This. The third verse says, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Let's read that now in the message. Now, friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in the Macedonian province. Fierce troubles came on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there and sought for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians. Pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians. In other words, Paul didn't come there soliciting donations. 
I don't really know what Paul was expecting when he got there, but he actually, they pled to him that please receive this that we have laid together. Please do so. You'll find as you search the scriptures, in fact, that these folks at Philippi, they actually did this. They were poor. They were exceedingly poor. They were, as the saying is, poor as church mice. But he told the Philippians in, in chapter 4 of Philippians 15 and 16, he says, when I departed from Macedonia, when he left this area, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only, for even in Thessalonica, this is Philippi, Thessalonica is 50 miles down the road. When he was at Thessalonica, the Philippians sent once and again unto my necessity. Isn't this incredible? And then also in 2 Corinthians 11, 9, obviously written to the Corinthians, he says, When I was present with you and wanted, for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. So when he's in, in Thessalonica, Philippi is supplying him. When he's down in Corinth, Philippi is supplying him. When Jerusalem is terribly in need, the ones in Philippi who are probably in greater need are supplying Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? I find that fascinating. Anyways, fifth verse says, This was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. What explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and to us, and the other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. I want to jump forward in this chapter now. Here's another thing I really find fascinating. And that is, <clears throat> well, starting at verse 12, it says, For if there be, speaking of giving, if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to the hath not. This is a principle of giving. You don't have to give according to what you think you ought, according to others, whatever, not according to that it is accepted, according to that a man hath, and not according to the hath not. You give according to your ability. That's a principle. Not according to what everybody else is doing. Not according to the need necessarily, but according to what you have, according to your ability. Thirteenth verse, for I mean not that other be ease and ye burden, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be a quality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. What is that? That is right out of the Communist Manifesto. It is. To each according to their need, and from each according to their ability. That is communism, with one exception. The exception you'll find in the ninth verse of the same chapter. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. The problem with communism is there is no Jesus. And there is no cure for the selfishness of people's hearts. It's ideal. And it originated in the scriptures without a Jesus. And it takes Jesus to make it work. The selfishness of people's hearts, in fact, I've only learned recently, and I, I, I didn't brush up on this, that, that um, um, communism, really socialism, first originated in the United States when the pilgrims hit the shores. Have you heard that recently? Yeah. They tried it. It didn't work. And they had to learn that, that each one needs to be inspired to produce for themselves and then give generously to others. And that was the lesson that was learned there. I, I just find this fascinating that here in the scriptures is what really works, but it requires a cure for the selfish human heart. 
So I had several principles of giving that I wanted to talk about, and I'm only going to get to a couple. Um, one was, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. <clears throat> Give according to your ability. <clears throat> Another one is that everybody needs to give. <clears throat> That's one reason I, I'm inspired, I'm blessed, when I see the little people giving. <clears throat> Even though maybe they haven't earned that, the pattern is being set for them, and they're learning to give routinely and regularly. <clears throat> Each of us needs to learn that at some time in our life. But everybody needs to give, everybody, even the poor, even such as those that live at Philippi, and even such as live at Jerusalem. And it's kind of weird. Why would those from Philippi lay together money that's going to be maybe a year and a half? I don't know how long. It'll be a while until it gets to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, then, at the same time, um, they're taking it out of their pocket and giving it to somebody else. I don't know why. It's because we need to. God has decided that, and it works. That's the way it works. Everybody needs to give <clears throat> according to your ability. I have a story to illustrate that. I hope I never forget this story. But it, it was, uh, I'm going to say maybe 10 years ago, I'm not sure, <clears throat> that I was, I was uh, traveling to look at a piece of equipment uh, that we may be wanting to purchase. And I flew to uh, Seattle, rented a car, and drove north to, um, what's the name of the town way up northern, right on the Canadian border in, in Washington, uh, Bellingham. Looked at the equipment and was headed back. I think I was going to get a motel that evening and then fly out the next day <clears throat> and come back home. So. driving south on the interstate, I needed to send an email. And so I, I pulled over and I pulled on an off ramp <clears throat> intending to get back on after a while. And I sat there along on the berm, along this busy off ramp, uh, two lanes of traffic coming to a stoplight at the bottom. And there I sat and, and traffic would stop for the light and pile up, you know, and then the light would turn green and they'd go. And, and I was kind of typing up a long email, and, and I, I had noticed it across the two lanes of traffic over there on the corner on the other side under a, a, a light, and it wasn't dark yet, but there was a light post there, was a homeless lady. And there she was, uh, 150 feet from me probably. And, and uh, as the traffic would stop, why, uh, you, know, you know the routine, uh, she would approach cars and, and hope for a handout. And, you know, routine. And so anyway, I'm, I'm minding my own business, and there's a tap, tap, tap on the window, and, and I look, and there she is. The traffic had lighted, turned green, traffic had cleared out. She came across the street, tapped on my window. I, oh, great. And so I rolled my window down a crack and uh, began to converse with her. And as we talked, I rolled my window down farther. And... Uh, it was, it was interesting. Uh, Laura had been a pretty woman at one time, I think, but uh, it, she'd had a hard life. Um, teeth were missing. Uh, she wore, a, an, I would say, an overcoat, a huge, old, heavy coat that probably somebody had given her. It was kind of chilly. And <clears throat> I believed her story. I don't know how much I heard of it and how much was true, but. I, I felt that I could believe what she had to say, and it, it wasn't a pretty story. I asked her questions. She had several children that had been taken away from her, and her goal today was to get enough money to get a room for the night in, in a motel somewhere. And so uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I offered her any advice or not, but I, I gave her a little money, and and wished her well, and, and she thanked me, and she went back to the other side before the tra traffic backed up again. And I went back to my um, email, and so I'm busy at it again, and tap, tap, tap on the window. She's back. <clears throat> oh, great. 
And I rolled the window down. And she offered me an apple and a bag of cashews, a little, a baggie. I like cashews. And I said, Laura, you can't give that to me. Somebody gave that to you. And there's no way. I, I can't take that. You're the person that needs it, obviously. And, but in whatever word she used, she insisted. And I realized that I needed to take that. And the greater lesson was that everybody needs to give. It's built in us to need to give, to want to give, and to feel good about giving. And there has to be a recipient also. And maybe the recipient isn't really technically the needy one. But we have to let everybody have their opportunity to give. And so what Laura gave me was my lunch the next day on the way home. And of course, I've often wondered what happened to Laura. So there's many things we could talk about. Um, we're simply stewards of God's stuff. The thief says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. The worldly-minded person says, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours, I'll keep it. The godly man says, what's mine is a gift from God, I'll share it. <clears throat> there are three potential blessings available any time there is such a transaction as this. And one is that the, the giver can receive the blessing, as Laura did. And two is that the receiver can receive the blessing, as Laura did and as I did. And three is that God might receive the blessing too, if it's given and received in the right spirit. So what happens when I choose to give and I find out that there really wasn't the need that I thought? Or let me propose this. You know what? Almost always, when there's an opportunity presented whereby we, may, we can give, an opportunity that we can choose to give to or not, almost always we can look at the situation and pick it all apart and figure out why there shouldn't be a need for this right now. We can all, almost always do that. But you know what? If that's the case, then only two of the blessings were realized. God got the blessing and I did too if I gave it in the right spirit. And the receiver really maybe didn't. That's their problem, not mine. And so look at it that way, that there's always opportunity for three blessings, maybe only two, maybe only one will be mad at times. If I have the wrong attitude and so does the receiver, only God gets the blessing. Well, God bless us as we think about these things and it's time for us to conclude our remarks.